It's a joy to be with you today, church. Um, first hour was a real blessing and thankful to see so many of you here. The second hour, um, as we begin to wrap up this month of November and look towards uh, the Advent and December to come, just thankful to have you here with us today. If you'll grab your Bibles with me, church, and turn to the Gospel of Luke, you'll find Luke's Gospel towards the back of your Bible. We're um, enjoying the journey as we've now completed chapter 1 and today move into chapter 2. Uh, in my ninth sermon of Luke, we arrive here at chapter 2. And, and this chapter might be one of the most known or often talked about text in all of Holy Scripture. Um, the entire world, largely believing and unbelieving, interact with the contents of chapter 2 of Luke, um, the other testimonies of the Gospels. Why? Because of the annual holiday that we celebrate called Christmas and all that comes with that and the music and the songs and the testimonies and the nativities and everything else. Uh, it is here that we witness the birth of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Um, it is here that the world ponders the sacrifice and the miracle of God to take on flesh and to dwell among us. It is here that we find the, the narrative of Christmas that we love so much. I pray that our time here in chapter 2 today and beyond is a real blessing to you in your life, not only because we're at the dawn of our annual Christmas celebration, 2023, but because of what God reveals to us here in his word how amazing it is, how, how game-changing it is to our lives when we understand it fully and rightly. Church, let us not just study this morning with consideration of history, but to consider how God changes my life as a result of these truths, as a result of what he's ordained to do through these people, these players in his story, grand players at that. Most of all, that it points us to Jesus himself. He might change your life in the most amazing and eternal ways. With much to cover, look with me at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Luke began sharing this gospel account with the testimony of the birth of John the Baptist. And he marks that moment in verse 5 of chapter 1 by speaking of the reign of King Herod. Here in Luke chapter 2 verse 1, we see the testimony of the birth of Jesus Christ marked by the reign of Caesar Augustus. The rule of these leaders is a constant reminder that the Jews are still under a very oppressive, captive rule, even in their own land. King Herod's heir is also named Herod. That Herod, that Luke will later reference as Herod the Tetrarch, will be the one to have John the Baptist imprisoned and eventually beheaded. Caesar Augustus, governor, Pontius Pilate is the one who will order Jesus to be flogged 
and then murdered by crucifixion. The story of Rome's rule in the life and time of Jesus begins with heavy and oppressive taxation, as we witness in these pages, rule, and it ends with cruel, excruciating crucifixion, persecution. Right away, we have to see, according to God's holy word, that while Christmas is a story that is amazing, it is warm, it is full of life and, and, and wonder for, for these people. They were lo- living in incredibly hard and, and oppressive times. This context is so important for us, church, to see the, the depth of sin and darkness that Jesus entered to save us. Notice with me, that Luke says, according to Caesar Augustus, all the world should be registered. That's a pretty grand statement. It's not a reference to the entire planet, but a large majority of the Roman Empire, which was the dominant world power of the day, thereby encompassing much of the known world. It needs to be understood that there was no greater a ruler in all of the world than the one who sat on the throne of Rome, Caesar Augustus. His name and his birth, Gaius Octavius, grew up, succeeded his great uncle. You might have heard of his uncle, Julius Caesar, who adopted him as his own. Julius was assassinated in 44 BC, and the Senate in Rome named Gaius the next emperor of Rome. His name is changed to Caesar Augustus, which means the supreme, sublime, majestic one. Truly, he was the most powerful man in the world and largely known as the greatest ruler Rome ever had. He restored unity and brought about order after a pair of destructive civil wars ushered in the famous Pax Romana. Essentially, his rule meant an era of peace and prosperity for Rome that would last almost two centuries. He is highly feared and respected. Caesar Augustus, the supreme, sublime, majestic czar, lord, ruler, of the land, of the world. And yet, the true supreme ruler of all things, the king of kings, was in the womb of Mary, ready to make his humble entrance into the very world he created and has sustained for all time. What a moment, church, in all human history we are bearing witness to this morning. One commentator writes, The census serves to place the birth of Jesus in the context of world history to show that the decree of an earthly ruler can be utilized in the will of God to bring his more important purposes 
true fruition. Church, see with me how all the rulers of the world are far below the reign of the holy God, creator, sustainer, ruler of all. He uses their power and their thrones to accomplish his holy will. Praise be to God. Look with me at verse 2, and here we see Luke add some clarity to mark this time. This was the first registration when Quinius was governor of Syria. Luke makes this additional note to highlight that this census of taxation was in particular a watershed moment in the life of the Jews under the rule of Rome. In Acts 5.37, Luke himself will write in his second letter an account of a rebellion led by a Galilean named Judas that began at this particular census, history tells us, and went on to equal the dispersion of many Jews. It also is where the seeds were sowed for the rise of the zealots. This somewhat obscure marker we read in verse 2 about the governor of Syria by Luke is really a way to mark in time where this is happening, the events that are surrounding it. Uh, They didn't have calendars to mark these things like we do today. So writers would use notation of historic events or rulers to, to mark the narrative of the story that they're testifying or telling. Thankfully, Jesus' parents didn't join the revolt of Judas the Galilean, even though they were from Galilee. They complied with their rulers, oppressive as they were, to obey their command and pack to make the hard journey that the census required, which is what we hear the clarity of in verse 3. Look with me, Luke 2, 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. The added stipulation that the head of the home must return to his hometown to register is nothing more than to show the flex of the Roman rule and power in the culture of that day. Right? They make you have to take this terrible journey to go out of your way to register in your hometown. And yet what is so cool is that we get to see all the more the providence of God to use these things to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Because this is where God foretold that the Messiah would be born. Many have asked, why did a very pregnant young Mary make this 100-mile journey with Joseph? She was not required to be there to register. She was not the head of the home. Most likely the answer is found in the simple fact that she is very with child as the text reveals to us. And because of their commitment to each other and the formation of this family, they wanted to be together and not apart when the Lord would ordain the time would come for her to give birth. Once again, we know that the ultimate and first cause reason is that God himself ordained from all eternity that Mary would join Joseph and be in Bethlehem when it was time for Jesus to be born. Praise be to God. Before we get into the details given in the next verse, notice with me one more thing about the context of the orders given. 
The decree of the government of Caesar is yet another reminder to us to see that while evil rulers will make times and life hard for us in this time, in this life, I mean, here's a great example. The gross inconvenience for these two to make this journey while she is very with child. Church, they didn't jump in the air-conditioned Tesla and throw on a good mix of jams and run up 100 miles to Fresno and be there in a short trip. None of that was accessible. The, the grueling trip of what this would mean for this young couple was very, very real. And surely not desired in any way. And even though these orders were hard and unjust, it is important that we see that God is at work. And this, for us, gets to be a, a great point of application for our own life in these times that we live, church. Think back on your own journey and how many times you have been seriously put out by some kind of detour or orders of a boss or an authority over you to do something you really didn't want to do. Something that would take you far off the path you really wanted to be on. The schedule you hoped to fulfill. But yet, as you look back on that, you see that God did some amazing things in that time, in that detour. As we read Scripture, as we are reminded of God's sovereign hand over our lives, we need to be emboldened to see that it is our detours and setbacks in our lives that is often where the Lord does some of his very best work in our lives, most important work in our lives. I say this to help us, church, to not only loathe and detest these things, but to walk by faith as hard times or unjust happenings or detours or turns in the path happen that are frustrating, truly frustrating. You work hard, you prepare, you set the table, and it all doesn't go to plan. The hope is, instead of loathing, complaining, finding a blanket and finding a corner to cry and whine and complain about it for hours or days or months or sometimes years, that we might approach these things with more faith in the Lord. And real prayer, honest prayer, that could say, Lord, please God, prepare me for the special assignment that this time and happening in place may bring, whereby I can bring much of your name to those who observe it that I can love my neighbor well in your holy name, that I can honor you in this. Oh, how much better this incredibly difficult, often unjust and hard life will be when we who belong to God walk by faith in Jesus and not by sight. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths be not wise in your own eyes 
fear the Lord and turn away from evil, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Surely, we are being blessed to get to bear witness to the truth of these words as we get to watch the testimony of the Lord in each other's lives as well as see it in our own. May we continue to embrace these good teachings of Scripture and the examples before us to help us when facing these times to walk by faith and not by sight. Look with me now at Luke chapter 2, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary went from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea. Now notice it says they went up, right? Just like when we go up from Bakersfield to Fresno, right? I don't go up to Los Angeles. That's to not understand north and south and movement of these basic things. But most travelers on this route would go down to the valley and then start a slow climb. What we might not have in view by looking at a basic map that Galilee is above Judea, what you don't see is the geography and that Galilee is lower than Bethlehem. Nazareth sits up on a hill. So while they would have moved through the valley, they would have started to climb what history tells us is a pretty legit hill, 2,500 feet even in elevation over the stretch of that journey. Jerusalem, a big city, were in that approximate area also at elevation. So this means that Joseph and a very pregnant young Mary didn't only travel these hundred miles, but did it uphill. I'm not going to make a joke about how your parents went to school. (laughs) But see with me, the extent of, of this struggle for them was real. Praise God for his mighty hand to get them there. Amen. When considering Bethlehem as testified here in this part of the text, as the city of David, it's helpful to remember why it's called this. Because often when people think of David, they think of King David and his rule in Jerusalem, right? Which is nearby, much larger city. Little old Bethlehem is a small town, but also the place where David was born and from. If you remember the work of the Lord to select his next king following Saul in the Old Testament, he tells Samuel to go identify from among the sons of Jesse whom he will choose as king. 1 Samuel 16.1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Bethlehem is where David is from. This is why Bethlehem is considered the city of David. The Old Testament also gives us an amazing prophecy of the birthplace of the Messiah. 
the words of Micah found in Micah chapter 5. But 600 years before that would happen, Micah is a minor prophet to remind you why they're called minor and major prophets. Minor not because his message was less important, but because the uh, breadth of the volume of his writing was much smaller than that of the major prophets who wrote much more. Micah, like most of the minor prophets, his message was about judgment. Uh, God's people sin, the message of destruction. Destruction's going to come upon Israel is the message. The northern kingdom, destruction's going to come upon Judah, the southern kingdom. In chapter 2 of Micah, it says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil in their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. In other words, they're powerful people who can pretty much do whatever they want, so they spend their dark hours planning to do evil. They covet fields, and then they go seize those fields and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house and a man of his inheritance. People who had power, rulers and chiefs and leaders who are usurping the rights of the rest of the people, stealing and pillaging. In verse 3, there says, there, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. He says, I'm going to break your pride. I'm going to bring judgment on you because of your corrupt leadership. And this goes on for a few chapters in Micah until we get to chapter 5, where Micah speaks of great news. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In the midst of this terrible situation of corrupt leadership, Micah says there's going to come a leader. A leader who's just. A leader who is from eternity. The leader will come and he will come to Bethlehem. This is where Micah speaks of the arrival of the Messiah. Micah says that God's promised deliverer will come and he will come from Bethlehem. This was astonishing considering the very humble reality and somewhat obscurity of Bethlehem. I mean, this is not a famous town who had famous history. I mean, David's birth there is about as famous as it got. And for us today, you know, think of Shafter. You and I know where Shafter is because it's next door, right? But it's it's obscure. I mean, the, what big news comes out of Shafter, right? It, uh, many people in the state would not be able to tell you where Shafter is. And definitely not throughout the nation, because there's not national news. It's not known like that. It's not known like Bakersfield. Bakersfield, the eighth biggest city in California, the 52nd biggest city in the United States. It's very different. Little old Shafter. Little old Bethlehem. Church, see with me a 600-year-old promise about the birthplace of the Messiah was in this little town. 
God's Redeemer would come from the line of David, from the little town by which David was born. To keep moving, it says they came to Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So she's with him. Luke makes it clear that Joseph and Mary are still betrothed. This is like engagement for us today, but it's different. Our engagement is not as committed as this. These two are in many ways considered to already be married in the way that culture operated. There's a much heavier commitment involved. The way they would break a betrothal, have even the language of divorce. Although scripture seems to point to the fact that there are formalities to their official marriage union, they did not yet consummate their marriage by being physically intimate, as the Lord instructs us to do, for two to become one. Other gospels testify the clarity that Joseph decided to wait for Jesus to be born for this. All this points us back to the important fact that the child in the womb of Mary is inside the womb of a virgin. The child is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the child is without the seed of, of man, without the seed of the federal head of man, Adam, and therefore without the seed of original sin that every one of us are born with at conception. That original sin, that inherited sin belongs to us. We're guilty at conception. This means that this child in Mary's womb is holy, for he is the Son of God incarnate. Truly amazing. We turn to verse 6 and 7. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem to register and pay their own taxes according to the decree of Caesar. But they don't get to turn around and head home. I would imagine they wanted to get back home. Why? Because something big is about to go down. We really don't want to do this on the road. But the time had come, just as God ordained it to be. Right? God ordained that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now the whole story of the birth of Christ is found right here in verse 7 of Luke's Gospel. And the only thing that we're told is that she gave birth. That's it. That's all it says. She successfully gave birth to the child. It's simple, and yet it's absolutely game-changing. Why? Because the details of how long her contractions were are grossly inconsequential. Why? Because the God of the universe was born in a body like yours and mine. Amazing. There he lay, God in flesh. And while he was glory and majesty 
and purity like no other ever born. He was still just a newborn baby. And therefore needed to be clothed and comforted and given a place to sleep. And so it's testified that she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. It was customary in that day to use strips of fabric to bind a newborn baby snugly for warmth, security, help straighten out those crooked limbs that have been all bound up in the womb for so many months. Although this is the most supreme baby ever to be born, he was not adorned with the robes of majesty. His treatment was that of like any other baby. Simple pieces of fabric to wrap his little body. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. This is where this gets a little unique. A manger is an animal feeding trough when we study that word in its original language. So the one who reigns over and sustains all of creation from all eternity is born and then laid in an animal's feeding trough. This was the best thing they had other than to lay him on the ground. Right? See that with me. Consider that with me. It was a pragmatic place to cup the child to not roll off something flat so he could sleep. See with me in this church the humble reality of Jesus, of his love, of his sacrifice for you and for me. The low-born king of kings truly lowered himself in every way so that we could be lifted up in salvation. Praise be to God. She laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The word inn that Luke uses here is not what most of us think of. Some of you are thinking, oh no, here we go again. We read inn and we think of a place with rooms to rent, right? A hotel, a motel, a small town, inn. That's not the word that Luke uses here. Not that. We, we hear the word, that word, describing a place to rent, with rooms to rent, by Jesus in a famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember? In that story that Jesus tells, the Samaritan takes the injured man to an inn and rents him a room where he could rest to recover from his injuries. The inn, the word inn that Luke uses is not that word. Instead, it's a different Greek word that Jesus uses later when giving the disciples instructions on where he wants to eat the Last Supper with them. If you will, with your hand in Luke chapter 2, jump 
20 chapters ahead in Luke's gospel. And look, look with me quickly at Luke 22, 7 through 13. Let me show you this word. Luke 22, 7 through 13. They came, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. The word guest room that Jesus speaks here is the same word that Luke uses in chapter 2. This means there's no room for Joseph and Mary in the guest room of where they had hoped to stay. The guest room or the other room was common in a small home in that day normally kept for guests. So what we have here is not an innkeeper, you know, that begrudging guy who like doesn't give him a room. It's not that situation. But likely a distant relative of Joseph's family who gave them space in the animal quarters of the home because the guest room was already occupied by a family member ranking above him. The average home in that day had a main room, maybe the way you and I would think about a uh, apartment that just is one room, right? In that one room, you have you kind of do it all. You, you eat, you cook, you sleep, and so that was the main room for the family, right? The guest room was either adjacent to that room or in some cases, just above that room, as we understand some of the architecture of that day. These are small dwellings. In other texts, you think about lighting a candle so that all the house can be lit. Think of how big, therefore, that house would be, right? So the upper room that Jesus told the disciples to go find, uniquely in the city, Jerusalem, for the Last Supper, Part of the uniqueness of his picking of that place probably was because of the substantial size of it to accommodate all that were going to be in there, right, to have the Last Supper. It was unique compared to what would have been normal. The average person, especially little Bethlehem, is going to have a very humble estate, a very humble quarters to live in. Right, with a main room and some kind of guest room in the common building. And then where they would keep their animals would be right there in that structure. Why? Because they're not they're not wealthy people with many structures like on a on a ranch with land. Their animals, whatever that family would possess, would be kept right there. Space is very small. Right? So 
To say there was no room in the guest room meant their only option then was to make it work in the animal's quarters, and therefore the best thing for a bed for the newly swaddled baby was a manger, the animal's feeding trough. No furniture in that space, right? It wasn't furnished for people. It's where the animals were put at night. It was either on in the trough or on the ground. So an elevated cups feeding trough would have to do. Later, we'll see in Luke chapter 2, shepherds are told by angels to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's not abnormal. That's very normal. What's very abnormal and how they're going to identify this baby is that he's laying in a manger, right? Not a place you put newborn kids. Church, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son. Never in all of the history of the world has there ever been a birth so marvelous as the birth of Jesus Christ. First Timothy 3, 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness He was manifested in the flesh. The birth of Jesus is truly an amazing miracle. The eternal God the Son put on flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to the way that John speaks of this in his gospel account, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, God the Son, eternal, took on flesh and lived among us as fully man. We are so prone to make Christmas to make the consideration of this event routine. To allow all the little things that point us to it to become the main thing in the songs and the flavors and, 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 and the, to the traditions. In Luke's Gospel, right here in verse 7, is where it is testified the Incarnation. And it is amazing. And so with the remainder of our time this morning, I want to love us well to slow to really dive in and take this to heart this morning. While we most specifically celebrate and remember Jesus' death and resurrection every Easter, it is His birth we celebrate every Christmas. The news of Jesus' arrival, His advent, It's what we're going to sing and celebrate every Sunday this December. It's just around the corner. But I want you to see this morning why it matters so much. Because God put on flesh. Because the doctrine of the incarnation is truly amazing and worthy of great celebration and praise when we understand it rightly. 
What does incarnation mean? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word incarnation is a big Latin word. The root word is carne. It means meat. Right? God, the Son, took on human flesh. Meat. God, the Son, who is spirit, put on flesh. Became flesh and dwelt among us. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Jesus is the deity who took on flesh. Church, it is essential that we don't just fly through and miss the depth of what this is. And what it means to us. The one true and eternal, all-powerful God the Son became real flesh. Not a hologram. But real. You could touch it. You could hug it. You could pierce it and it would bleed. This is God with us in such a miraculous way. And so mind-blowing when we really begin to dive into the depths of what is happening here. If it remains only at the surface for you, 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 you risk missing the magnitude of the life change that this truth brings to you and, and, and the authenticity of the worship then, therefore, that wells up in you when considering these things. Church, understand this had to happen. Or none of us have any hope. Jesus had to be born as a human being for several vital reasons. Consider Paul's words to the Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Humans are born under God's moral law, and only a human, therefore, can redeem other human beings born under the same law. Only Jesus could perfectly keep that law because of who he is, perfectly fulfill the law, and therefore redeem all of us who are disobedient to it. 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent his son, that's the incarnation, to die in our place to satisfy the righteous wrath of God due our sin. Church, we have to get this. You have to get this because your sin is real, because God's righteous judgment on sin is real, because the cross of Jesus is real. He had to take on flesh because God established the necessity of death as the payment rendered for sin, the shedding of blood for the remissions of sins. We have pointed back to that in the previous sermons, Leviticus 17, Hebrews 9, other places. The problem is the blood of the animals that God put forth in the Old Covenant was insufficient for true and full, complete forgiveness of our sins. It pointed us to the only one who could truly do this. Hebrews 10, 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, sacrificed his human life and shed his human blood to cover the sins of all whom God would save based on his grace, 
his sovereign plan of salvation, those of us who would put faith in Jesus alone. Beloved, if you have any temptation in this day, in this time of your life, to be overly focused on your flesh or on the flesh of another, I plead with you to put all of your focus on the flesh of Jesus. For it is the flesh of Jesus that is your only hope for forgiveness of sin, for new life with God, for eternal life with God. Oh, how he loved us in the incarnation, in the humiliation to take on flesh. Paul says it so, so important and eloquent in Philippians 2, 6-8. through 8. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we look to God's holy word, to better understand the incarnation, we see God the Son humbly and fully taking on all that it is to be a man, but without compromising all that he is to be fully divine. We'll come back to this in a moment, but first hear with me that the humanity that Christ assumed unto himself was complete and lacking nothing. The only thing his flesh did not have that all of the rest of mankind has is sin. He was not born in the seed seed of man, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He did not have original sin, imputed sin. He did not ever sin. But in every other way, Jesus' flesh is flesh, just like you and me. You have to get that. If Jesus didn't have Superman flesh, just like you and me, but without sin. When considering the fundamentals of the incarnation of Jesus, his humanity allows us to have a great comfort in the fact that God the Son relates to us in ways the angels and animals cannot. I want us to slow this morning to really rejoice at this amazing miracle. And to do this, we need to see the amazing fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. As a church, we've been delving into these the, the nuances of these truths, and it is helping, it is correcting a lot of misunderstanding about how this works thereby improving the accuracy not only of our testimony, but of our worship. And so, buckle up with me for a moment, church, and let's deep dive into these glorious truths that are unveiled in the birth of Jesus. To do this, look with me for a few minutes at our historic Baptist confession, specifically to start chapter 8, section 2. Listen carefully to these historic truths about who God is, not what we think him to be, 
but what his holy word teaches us about who he is. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything he has made. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her. The power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus, he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David, in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Now when we say the second person of the Holy Trinity of God, God the Son, is truly and eternally God, we are confirming all that's said in chapter 2, section 1 and 2. Look at that with me briefly. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but Him. He is perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body parts. I'm sorry, no body parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will. For his own glory, he is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. Section 2, God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all-sufficient in himself. He does not need any creature he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his own glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. He alone is the source of all being, and everything is from him, through him, and to him. He is absolute sovereign rule over all creatures to act through them, for them, or upon them as he pleases. In his sight, everything is open and visible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. It does not depend on any creature. So for him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. 
He's absolutely holy in all his plans, in all of his works, in all of his commands. Angels and human beings owe to him all the worship, service, and obedience that creatures owe to the creator and whatever else he is pleased to require of them. Amen? What this means is we must think about the incarnation and the hypostatic union of Jesus' two natures correctly so we don't turn them into something that they are not biblically, even if that's hard to do. When Scripture speaks of God the Son taking on flesh, taking on mankind's nature, it cannot mean he surrenders the fullness of the state of his divine being. For if he does, he ceases to be eternally God. Always has, is, always will be. This cannot be in any way. James Dizal said it to a group of us. It is God who is incarnate, not an artist formerly known as God. We cannot say that God the Son was one way in eternity and then another way in creation, for that would mean that he changed. Church, God cannot and does not change. Augustine of Hippo says it this way, But the Word of God, the only begotten Son, always lives unchangeably with his Father. He neither decreases because his abiding presence is not lessened, nor does he advance because his perfection is not increased. Protestant reformer Peter Verbingley said it this way, the word of God was equally perfect both before the incarnation and after the assumption of his humanity. The classic Orthodox historic Christian view that we or elders hold to is that God the Son did not undergo any change in the incarnation. One theologian put it this way, the two natures of Christ are united in his person without confusion or change, but also without division or separation. To emphasize the deity of Christ in no way diminishes his humanity, and to highlight his humanity in no way detracts from his deity. The properties of each nature retain, retain their own integrity, even in their union in the single person of the Son. Now many wrongly think about this, wrongly. because we lean on human reasoning to make our way. For example, many have wrongly interpreted Paul's famous words that I read to you earlier, Philippians 2, 5-7, through incorrectly, when it says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Church, we are passionate here at Disciples Church that Scripture interprets Scripture. So we don't read something like that and say, see right there, change. No, we look at the rest of Scripture to rightly read this verse. Emptied himself does not mean he lost something that he was. 
like he humbly gave it up or put it on a shelf. That cannot be. It's talking about the humility of God the Son to assume to himself the limitations of the flesh. It is referencing his accommodation, his humiliation, his sacrificial love to take on all that would come with fleshly life in humanity. What we have to see in Jesus' incarnation is something that is like nothing else. And here it is. Here's the key. It doesn't relate. And here's why. Because no one is like God. So when we try to make it relate, we're doing something we should not do. Now, while Jesus is very relatable in his humanity, he is utterly set apart in the reality of having two natures, but being one person. Why? Because no one else does that. The Historic Baptist Confession, chapter 8, section 7, in this work of mediation, Christ acts according to both natures, by each nature doing what is appropriate to itself. Even so, because of the unity of the person, that which is appropriate to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person under the designation of the other nature. Now, if I lost you there, I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to help you. But to help you do that, let me define hypostatic union. Jesus Christ, eternal, fully divine nature, being united to his fully human nature at the incarnation. These two natures are not mixed or confused or changed, but are united without loss of separate identity, and they are inseparable. So at the incarnation, true God, fully God, and true man, fully man, are eternally united in one person. The properties concur in one person. Each nature does that which is proper to itself because the unity of the one person, that which is appropriate to one nature, is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person under the designation of the other nature. But that does not mean that they compromise what belongs to one nature and not the other. Okay, again, what are we saying there? Thomas Aquinas says it this way, and herein lies some example to help us understand what's being really importantly clarified here. Christ is one person subsisting in two natures, the human and the divine. Hence, he can be described by names being drawn from either nature. Furthermore, no matter what name by which he is designated, it can be predicated of him because it is one person, underlying both natures. Consequently, we can say, and here's the example, that the man created the stars. And the Lord of glory was crucified. However, it was not as man that he created the stars, but as God. Nor was it as God that he was crucified, but as man. Further, we all agree that this hypostatic union is necessary for our salvation. We cannot undermine this. 
What we have to understand is that God the Son did not add something he did not have. He did not lose something he already had at the Incarnation. The careful word that we use, classic theologians are trying to use, to best describe this is the word assume, not the word add. God the Son assumes to his person a human nature. He took on a human nature. He took on a role that did not change who he is. The careful nuances of this and how we think about it and speak about it, right? We need to get this right. So how does God the Son incarnate? He does not incarnate by departure and relocation, thereby meaning what was is not any longer. No. How does God the Son incarnate? And this is helping us to really think about the beauty and the vastness and the uniqueness of the incarnation. How does God the Son incarnate? He does not leave heaven, but instead he takes what is created into personal union with himself. The assumption of his human nature and flesh is the mechanism of his descent. Let me say that again. I really want you to try to capture it with me. The assumption of his human nature and flesh is the mechanism of his descent. It's important that we swim in the beautiful depth of these glorious truths. And don't shun them. Don't say, I like it the way I think about it, but are conformed to what God's word teaches us about these things. So as we read that she gave birth to Christ in our passage today, Luke chapter 2, verse 7, I want you to see the incarnation of Jesus rightly. And why it is so glorious is because of who took on flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, there is so much to praise God for in His perfect plan to send God the Son to take on flesh, to assume Himself a human nature, to live and die and rise so that we can be reconciled to Him forever, so that we might have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses and at the same time reigns perfectly over all things. This is the one to whom we praise. This is the one in whom we believe and trust. It is my hope that you see the glory of the incarnation, the wonder of the hypostatic union of two, Jesus' two natures, the perfection of the will of God, and the only hope mankind has for salvation. This amazing truth of the incarnate deity, I pray, is boggling you this morning. Why? Why do I pray for that? Because it's enriching you, it's stretching you, it's allowing you not to understand it more biblically, but then therefore to worship him all the more, not be guilty of flying by these things.
as we hail the incarnate deity, we have a better view of the absolute beauty and wonder and power of God to do this for our good and for his glory. As we prepare to celebrate the lowborn King of Kings this December, may the depths of these truths cause you to well up with worship for Christ our Redeemer. Amen? Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's with us. I want to pray, and I want to sing a song that speaks of these great truths, and then we'll dismiss and go. Join me, church. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. Thank you for Luke's gathering of these amazing facts and points of history, points of clarity to come to know, to slow down and really, really ponder what you have done in the life of these players, in the ways that you used Caesar Augustus, the governing powers of the day, the decrees of which they put forth, the, uh, the, the detour of the census, the, the divine timing to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, that Christ our Savior would be born. what God the Son has done to take on flesh so that we could be saved is truly amazing and worthy of all of our praise. Lord, help those of us who know you through Christ to well up with true worship and a deepening of our knowledge of these things and the testimony that comes from it the worship that is a result for those yet to know you, those yet to be unshackled from their sin, slavery to sin. I pray that it is your holy will this day to give saving faith to many, to know you, trust you, believe in Christ alone for salvation, and live for you the rest of their days. Hear us now as we celebrate Emmanuel, your sweet gift, God with us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. This is a great song, church. Rise to your feet. Let's sing it together.